Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. If you've heard me speak at all, you know that I like movies. I'm a fan of a lot of television shows. And um, one, of the, one of the things that uh, is, exists in especially movies that have like sequels and, and trilogies and, and even TV shows from season to season, oftentimes there's this thing that happens between when you last watch it and when you watch it again, there's what they call a time jump. Uh, and you're, maybe many of you are familiar with the time jump. It's, it's when you, you come back after watching last season or you come back to watch a sequel of this movie and a bunch of time has elapsed between when you saw the end of that and you see the beginning of this. And I think a lot of times it's because, you know, it takes a long time to make a movie and the actors age. And so that's one way to explain that they look older than they did when you last saw them. But, but um, <clears throat> it's interesting because when we go to God's word, there is a time jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so when we, when we leave off in the last book in the, in the Bible in the Old Testament is Malachi. And when you begin with the Gospels, there's a time jump there of about 400 years. And uh, it's called the 400 silent years, which I can see why it's called the 400 silent years, but I also feel like it's a bit misnamed because it gives you maybe the impression that it was quiet during those 400 years. Uh, the idea of being silent is that from the last thing that Malachi prophecies in the Old Testament to John the Baptist being, uh, Jesus describes as uh, the greatest prophet, uh, there is no, there are no prophets in Israel speaking God's word to the people and to the nations. And so that's why they call it the silent years, yet it was anything but inactive. In fact, if, if, we, if you'd bear with me for a second in a little bit of a history lesson, if you go back to those years, in those silent years between the, the Old and the New Testament, um, when you go into those silent years, you've got Persia, who's, who's conquered Babylon and is the kind of world power at that time. And the Persian Empire, they, they, uh, they actually allowed... Uh, many people, many of their conquered people to go home and to live in their, their lands that they were born in. Um, and it's not because Persia was like a kinder, gentler uh, nation, empire. Um, it, was, it benefited them and it was part of their prosperity. And so that's why they did that. Eventually, um, Alexander the Great and Greece conquered Persia. And uh, one of the things that came along with the Greek empire was a, a common language, and everyone knew Greek. Everyone was kind of forced to, know, to learn Greek at that time. Also, interestingly enough, in, in the Jewish world, in Israel, it was about during the time of the Greek empire that the Sanhedrin that we hear and read about in the New Testament in Jesus' time was developed. They weren't part of the Old Testament uh, Jewish religious system, but they were developed during the time that Greek, the Greek empire kind of ruled the world. <clears throat> and then... For about 100 years, there was a time of relative independence in Israel during these years. It's called the Maccabean Re 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 Rebellion. And so they were loosely self-ruled as they rebelled against 
uh, Greece and, and, and kind of things were kind of, kind of falling apart a little bit. And, and so they had about 100 years of general self-government. And uh, it's interesting because, again, God's, God was not speaking through any prophets, yet the Israelites still had the word of God, the Torah, the written law, and the, the written prophecies from the prophets and those kinds of things. Yet, yet at one point during this time, as they were setting up more systems and self-governing, there was two brothers in Israel who were at odds with each other. And of course, being Israel, God's called people, I mean, how would they settle their differences? They would go to the one true God, Yahweh, and, and actually they asked Rome to help because they thought Rome was a, a, a upcoming power. Maybe Rome could help them settle their differences, and that's when Rome pretty much just swallowed up Israel at that point. I mean, it's like, it's like the Democrats and Republicans saying, you know, I think the Taliban would be helpful to, to get us, find some common ground and kind of solve our conflicts between each other. Um, like that's what's asking Rome to solve Israel's problems would have been. So, so they go and, and the Roman Empire grows and, and conquers the known world and kind of swallows up everything that Greece had and expands and they begin what something was, that was called the Roman peace, which when we think of peace, it wasn't that everyone was happy, it's just that there was no external threats because Rome had conquered everyone and there was no internal threats either because Rome ruled by, by fear. Um, kind of like one of, I mean, if you wanna learn about parenting from me, it's probably a great idea, but, but um, our kids growing up, going places in the car, there was a no yelling rule, unless I was yelling. Um, because we're in a small space and it's really loud. And so I ruled our car trips through fear. Um, not necessarily, I mean, it was peaceful, but it was a fear peace thing. But, but um, that's kind of what Rome did. And, and, so that you, that, and that's what leads up to the time of Jesus and his incarnation. Uh, some of the things that happened in Israel during this time, these 400 silent years, were, was, was there was a number of systems and groups that rose up within Israel and established themselves. Um, there was the temple and the synagogues, which grew up during that time. And the temple was more focused on ceremony, whereas the synagogues were focused more on the traditional way of life for the Jews. You had the Sadducees, who were very much in the temple and about those ceremonies. And then you had the Pharisees, who were more of a grassroots movement of religious leaders, and they were out in the synagogues. And then you had the Sanhedrin, which was more about kind of, they were a political, religious, civil law type group in Israel. And then you had the scribes, who were more about the tradition of the Israelites and the law. And then you had like the Herodians, who were given some authority from Rome to rule in Jerusalem and in Israel. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you had the Essenes, who rejected all culture and went and built their walls around themselves and had everything. They, they really only interacted with themselves rather than interacting with the world around them. And then finally, you had the publicans, which were kind of the Jewish sellouts to Rome, and the zealots who believed that they needed to defeat Rome at any cost. They were those who probably traced some of their lineage and ideology back to the, the Maccabeans. But here's what's interesting about those 400 years of silence. Now remember that, that Jesus enters the scene and, and the, 
spiritual life of Israel is in shambles. The people who he's most at odds with are the religious leaders. The Sanhedrin, the temple, the synagogues, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, the Essenes, all of those people Jesus is at odds with. And so here's the thing, and you can decide whether you think this is true or not, but I think it is, that the world system reproduces itself and divides people in the absence of God's voice. The world systems reproduce themselves in every, every part of life, whether secular or religious, whether political or apolitical, the world systems reproduce itself and divides people in the absence of God's voice or in the rejection of God's voice. And that's what we have in those years from Malachi to John the Baptist. And so you have these two voices, Malachi, the last voice in the Old Testament, who God was speaking through, the word of the Lord. And then you've got John the Baptist, the first voice in the New Testament, who God is speaking through. And interestingly enough, John the Baptist was was in a line of temple priests because his father was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And so John the Baptist should have been a priest, but he went to the wilderness, to the desert, and he lived a very different life than being in the temple, which God used him to prepare the way for the Messiah. And, but in between these two prophets, really what we see is the priesthood gained in Israel, political influence, but like the temple, it was barren of its honoring and spirituality towards God. And so we, we, we are gonna back up a little bit, and as we are heading into Christmas in another few weeks, we wanted to, to, to kind of paint the picture of what that moment of Jesus interrupting human history looked like and, and what was going on, the, the culture, the environment, because this is what Jesus entered into. And the last words in the Old Testament before Jesus appeared were the words from Malachi. And so the next few weeks, we're gonna be doing a brief study in Malachi. And today, I'm just gonna look at the first five verses of chapter one. And so, and so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just start there in, in, in verse one and two. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, Malachi gets pretty intense. God is not pleased with Israel at this point in history. But I want you to hear and notice and make note of the first thing that Malachi says from the Lord to Israel as God is about to unload on them. I have loved you, says the Lord. Isn't that interesting? That's the first thing God says to Israel through Malachi when he's about to unload. He says, I have loved you. Before God corrects, disciplines, chastises, punishes Israel, he assures them of his love, that he loves them. And really, the, the lack of, of, of English in and the depth of Hebrew language, really, if you were to encompass what God says there in Malachi 1 verse 2, what he says there is, I have loved you, 
I do love you and I will love you. That's what God is saying right there in that, in that moment. I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you. See, God's love, even though Israel is behaving horribly, God's love is not contingent on Israel's behavior. Yet, in the same moment, Israel is suspicious, doubting God's love and faithfulness. But, but isn't, isn't that true for us? When we're not in a position that we want to be in and when things are hard and when our lives are disrupted, we start to say, okay, God, where are you? Do you really love me? We start to get suspicious of God's faithfulness and we look at other people and we say, well, how come their life is like that but my life is like this? Just like Israel, we get suspicious of God even though he says, I love you and I've loved you and I will continue to love you. See, the problem here is that Israel doesn't actually love God. And here's how we know. Because if if Israel did love God, they would obey him. It's really clear in scripture that the evidence of our love toward God is obedience. And Israel wasn't obeying God. And so Israel, or we could say as much as we do with our mouths, say, no, 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 I love God, I love God. But if we're not obeying God, then we really don't love God. There's something else at work in that moment then. And while God's love is not contingent on our obedience, our obedience is an indication of our love toward God. So here's here's what Israel, here's how Israel responds to God clarifying this. So, So it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Maybe to put it in maybe our terminology and maybe the thing that we've thought or maybe even said at a time or two. Basically, Israel looks to that statement that God makes and they say, you know what, if you loved us, then why are things the way they are? Like that's, that's a pretty common and easy road to go down as, as a human being, isn't it? That God would say he loves us, that he's for us, that he's faithful. And my response to that in my situation is, okay, God, do you love me? Then why are things the way they are? Why am I struggling with this? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me and this happening to them? And, and why, 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 why am I still having a problem with this? Why is this still frustrating my life? If you loved me, then it seems like things would be different. And that's exactly what Israel says, they, because they're in a place of difficulty. And so they're saying, well, God, if, if you love us, then why are things the way they are? And, and so God, God kind of gets into this a little bit, and it's interesting because God kind of goes back to the, one of the, the, the oldest sibling relational issues that turned into not just sibling issues, but to, to, to nation issues. And he says this. <clears throat> he says, it's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. 
If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. So God brings up Jacob and Esau and ultimately Jacob and Esau becoming Israel and becoming the nation of Edom. But, but there's an interesting thing he says in here. He, he, in Malachi 1.3, he says this. He says, but Esau I've hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Like that's a pretty, pretty vicious and extreme prophecy about what God has done to the land of Edom. And it hadn't happened yet. But I want to back up for a second. He says that about Edom, but going about 200 years prior to Malachi, to Jeremiah, in, in chapter 9, verse 11, this is, what, this is what God says about Israel through Jeremiah. And I want you to hear this, and I want you to see if you pick up on any similarities of what God just said about Edom. Jeremiah 9, 11, he says this, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. It's interesting to me that it is almost the same language, the same discipline, the same punishment for Israel and Jerusalem as God pronounces for Edom, a nation that does not recognize or obey him and is not his chosen people, whereas Israel should be recognizing him and are God's chosen people. See, one of the reasons that Israel is having such a hard time with this and why Edom is such a big deal is because while J Jacob and, and Esau were siblings and Israel and Edom are kind of neighboring nations, they did not get along well. In fact, in 587, when, uh, when Babylon finally destroyed Judah, they did it partially they probably didn't need the help, but they did it partially with the help of Edom. Because what Edom did was they provided informants to Babylon to inform on Israel, and they actually themselves blocked certain escape routes for the people of Israel while Babylon was kind of lowering the hammer. So not a lot of love between the two nations. And, 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 and so eventually, around 400 B.C., Edom does fall, but what's interesting is that they permanently lose their national identity never to be restored. And that's where in this, in, in Malachi 1.3, God says, even if they rebuild, I'll tear down and they will never have a place, which is God's judgment on their disobedience, their refusal to listen to God. Yet with Israel, he does the same thing. He tears down Jerusalem and it's in ruins without an inhabitant living there. But because of God's grace and mercy, God restores Israel. And so at this time, Israel only saw its own discipline, not that of Edom, and so they concluded that God did not love them, nor was he faithful to them. And they felt, see if you identify with this at all, they felt mistreated by God. Like God's mistreating me, 
because, I mean, look at them, they're fine, but I'm being mistreated. And, 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 so, and so it's interesting, God's response, he says, I've loved Jacob and hated Esau. Really what he's talking about there is not that he hates a people group that bear his image. What he's talking is in the context of choice, of election, of adoption, that God chose Israel, a people, not based on their uniqueness or how special they were, but he chose them based on his mercy and grace. Israel was in no way superior to Edom. And, and I know when we come across things like this, it's kind of hard, we say, okay, but why does God say he hated you know, Esau and loved Jacob? And, and I think it's funny, I, I guess I'll just go with the same answer that Charles Spurgeon gave, a woman after a sermon on a Sunday came up to Charles Spurgeon and asked, struggling with this passage, she said, I can't understand how God hated Esau. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And Spurgeon's response was this. He says, that is not my difficulty. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. <laughs> so maybe the question that we need to, to reflect on and ask is, how can God love me? <laughs> Maybe Israel should have thought about, rather than, than, than thinking of themselves so highly, maybe they should have said, how could God have even chosen us? Only by, by his mercy and his grace. See, these are two nations, both sinned, both punished, both. But Israel, by God's free mercy, was forgiven and restored, while Edom was not, and they were left to the consequences of their own sin. <clears throat> And really what God is saying here and an evidence of his love is that God chose Israel to carry his covenantal promise over all other peoples and ultimately for all other peoples. So God chose Israel to be his people, to carry his covenantal promise over all the other people, but he, used, he wants to use them for the benefit and for the blessing of all other nations including Edom. But Edom was rebellious and refused to, to repent. And, and so what God is saying here is, I love you and I have loved you. And here's how. I've called you to myself, not because you're super great. You're actually as terrible as everyone else. But I love you anyway. Not because of your behavior, not because of your obedience. Although if you love me, you'll obey me. It's pretty obvious you don't love me. This is how I've loved you. Which I think brings us to this place where, 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 where at the end of that verse five, it says that, that great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel because, because really Malachi's looking forward to what Jesus will do when he brings everything together and that great will God's name be beyond the borders of Israel. When Jesus sent his apostles out and he, he ascended into heaven and the apostles went out, God's name was great. And God's name is great today beyond the borders of Israel. His name is great all over the globe. And, and, and so really today, as, as we think about the context of Malachi and even what Jesus was born into, here's the thing that we have to understand that is difficult for us. It was difficult for Israel, and it's difficult for us today. God leads history very different than we would imagine. 
God leads history very different than we would imagine. You see, we assume that what makes sense to us is best. If it doesn't make sense to me, and you can't explain it in a way that it does, then it's not good. <laughs> and, and so with our intellect and our hearts and our logic and our feelings, we, we, we often are at odds with what God is doing and how he's leading history. And it's really easy. That's not just a, a, an attack on us saying, well, we're dumb or we're not smart and we're terrible people. God's people always have struggled with this. If you go back to the prophet Habakkuk, his struggle in his whole, in his whole book is that he's there in Israel and Babylon is gaining power and Babylon is terrible. Again, Babylon makes the worst, the worst governments today look relatively kind. And so Babylon, so, so Habakkuk comes before God and he says, God, look, I know, and this is thing that we kind of do, God, I know that we've, Israel has sinned. I know we've sinned. We've got our, we've, we've, we've got our, we've made our mistakes. We've got a lot of history. Some of it not real good. We've definitely sinned against you. But God, Babylon's so much worse than us. Like we don't even compare. They're terrible. And so God, there's no way that if you are who you say you are, that you would use Babylon in your plan of history. There's no way you would do that. Like if you love us, you wouldn't let that happen. And you see, Habakkuk, a prophet of God, made the same mistake that many people make because Habakkuk actually connected the political success of Israel with God's plan for redemption of the world. And that if, 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 if Israel fell, well, then God's plan is in question. That's not how God set it up. Even though Israel was God's chosen people, in fact, Israel had greater influence for the kingdom of God when they were enslaved than when they were on top. And, 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 so, and so God says to Habakkuk, and, and Habakkuk records it in chapter two, verse four, God says, the righteous shall live by faith. And what he's saying there is that those who are righteous will live by faith and see things, not by what they think is best. You see, our minds and our hearts, the things that we think there, we have to live by faith, recognizing that God does not lead history the way we expect him to, the way we would lead history if we were in charge. Which brings, brings me to this question that I, I wanna share with you this morning, and I, I would strongly encourage you to wrestle with this. And don't answer off the cuff. Because I think that there's a lot more to this than you might at first glance think. I think this is a super invasive 
an intense question. Do you have your confidence in God, in who God is? Do you have your confidence in who God is or do you have your confidence in your evaluation of what God is doing? Is your confidence in this life in who God is or is your confidence in the decisions you make based on your evaluation of what God is doing or what God says? And I would say that for, for, I would say that for all of us, to some degree, our decisions that we make are based on how we evaluate God, not because we trust who he is. See, the fundamental human issue, the fundamental human sin is that I believe that I can evaluate God. That's the foundational sin of human beings, is that I believe I can evaluate God. Uh, it's the garden temptation. Think about this for a second. When, when, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and, and God places a tree and he says, don't eat from this one particular tree, and, 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 and Eve is out there by the tree and there's the serpent, what happens in that situation? We say, well, well you know, Eve sinned and she ate of the fruit, gave it to Adam. Okay, but think about this for a second. What went on in that moment? Eve evaluated God and what he said. And she felt that her evaluation was that God was wrong and that she was right. Because she looked at the fruit and she said, well, I know God said that I'm not to eat it. But she looked at the fruit and she said, well, I mean, it looks really delicious. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some evaluation on this. It looks really good. So I mean, I know that not everything that looks good actually tastes good, but this looks like it would taste good. And then she says, looks at it, and she says, and God said that I would know good and evil. And he says that I shouldn't know that, but I feel like in my own evaluation, that might benefit me to know good and evil. So as far as evaluating God and his words about the tree, I'm gonna give God a below average evaluation and I'm just gonna eat of the fruit of the tree because I think that's gonna be a better situation for me. She decided that she could evaluate God rather than trust who he is and trust that what he says is important and for her benefit. Everything we do is born from some kind of evaluation. Everything we do, we evaluate and we make a decision. All sin comes down to this very thing. And, and here's the thing. Sometimes our evaluation works with what God says. Most civilizations agree and have evaluated that murder is bad. No problem. Murder's bad. Most civilizations have some kind of intuitive law or thinking about what to do with someone who murders someone else in cold blood. So sure, yep, God, good job. I give you an A on the murder thing. And then maybe uh, when God says don't covet, don't find a way to get what others have. And, and yeah, most civilizations say, yeah, that's, that's also a good thing. That's a pretty solid thing. So God, good job. Good job on the covet thing. And then the bear false testimony. 
excellent, way to go, God. That totally works with the way I think and the way I feel. No one should bear false testimony against me, so good job, I'm gonna give you uh, passing on your evaluation on the whole false testimony thing. But, but, but you see, we may agree with God's morality and his ethic, but we agree because it makes sense to us, and when it doesn't agree, we tend to give God a bad evaluation and go ahead with our own adjustments. For example, God says that sexual intimacy is, is bound within the context of a married man and a woman. And see, some people in here will say, yeah, that works, that makes sense to me. Some people might say, mm, I, I mean, I don't know. And then there's some people who say, you know what, that doesn't work with what I feel and what I think. So I'm not totally sure that that, that makes sense. Well, how about this? God says, love your neighbor as yourself and bless those who treat you wrongly. I'm gonna say there's probably a number of more people in here who are kind of like, I mean, that's a hard one. Are we sure? Are we sure God was like, are we sure he didn't just have like a bad burrito that day and was like, yeah, bless those who, who, who do bad things to you. Like, I don't know about that. I feel like my evaluation of that whole thing that he's calling us to do, that feels a little bit of a stretch. Or, or how about this, where, where Jesus, where throughout the Bible, Scripture, God calls his people to be one, to be united, to be in unity under him, that he is the one who brings them to unity. Jesus in John 17 prays very, very candidly about this and what it means. And basically, God says, my people, those who've been forgiven by me, and Jesus prays this, that they will be a corporate people when put together, the world would say, yeah, God must have descended from heaven because of what I see in them and I wanna be a part of that people. How about that? Because that's probably one of the greatest sins of our generation currently. Looking at the reaction of the church and how we've divided Basically, what we've done to John 17 and all of the Bible's call for unity, we've said, you know what? I don't really have confidence in God's character about what he says about his body and unity because my evaluation is we just can't do that. Like, there's too much. There's little things we disagree on. There's big things we disagree on. We can't do this. So our evaluation, well, we'll just have pockets of people who mostly agree. And when we don't, we'll go somewhere else. You see, it, it, it's, it's this thing where, where, where we tend to do what God tells us not to do and we use the world's system of metrics and then we blame God for not blessing the very thing he told us not to do. <laughs> and we're kind of like, why, why, God, do you really love us? Because why am I in this situation? I mean, maybe. <laughs> and, and, and so... And so this is exactly what Israel did and continued to do and which led into those 400 years of silence. They kept thinking and acting this way. They would say, God, this is bad or wrong. And God, you're not moving the way we, that makes sense to us. And so either you need to change it or we'll have to develop things and systems and ways of fixing 
what you've messed up, to give us what we really need and want. And, and, and so the, really the, the question for us as we, as we face this is, is are you willing to deny your own thinking and your own perception to believe what God has said or will you deny God and instead put confidence in what you see, think, and feel? You see, the word of God shatters our human paradigms and our perspectives. If it doesn't expend, extend beyond human mental capacity, then it probably isn't the word of God because God thinks so differently. This Again, God doesn't lead the history of the world the way we would expect him to. Here's the thing that we need to be reminded of, though, and it's the first thing that God says. God has loved us. God has loved you. God does love you. And God will love you. There's no question about that. I mean, sometimes we struggle with that. We feel like, well, does he really? That's the whole conversation he had with Israel. But God loves us. And, and here's the thing. Our love is evidence toward him in our willing obedience to him, not our evaluation of him. We don't love God by evaluating him. We love God by obeying him. Whether it makes sense to us or not. And so here's the question I wanna throw out to you to, to, to share with because it's ruined my life in the last week. So I feel like your life should be ruined too. <laughs> because God loves you, that's why. <laughs> no. What if I began to order my life as if the Bible were true? What if you began to order your life as if the Bible were actually true? Because to be honest, and this is me, as I wrestle with that, I do not order my life if, as if the Bible is true. I order the areas of my life that are comfortable with biblical truth, but the areas that are not comfortable with biblical truth, I don't know how intentionally I order my life according to the Bible. There's a lot of things that are uncomfortable, a lot of things I don't like, a lot of things that I can say, well, I mean, that's just not for me. You see, instead of ordering our lives as if the Bible were true, instead, we love our freedom and our options. We love options so much that it has cost us the pleasure and the joy of truly knowing God. When we reject what God says, what that costs us is the joy and the pleasure of truly knowing God, knowing him in the way he wants us to know him. Why is Jesus not my preeminent priority joy in life? Because I'm too busy rejecting things that he said and I miss out on the joy and the pleasure of knowing him. See, Malachi says that God's name will be known beyond the borders of Israel. We see the scope of the Bible moving toward a place of Jesus coming and redeeming his people, those who have come to him for salvation and forgiveness. 
So Jesus is coming for his bride, which is anyone who has come to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. And he is coming. What's interesting is the New Testament talks a lot about how God calls his people to be ready. And I haven't given that much thought for a long time, but, but I started thinking about that recently. I've always thought about being ready for Christ's return, meaning that my sins are forgiven and I have salvation. Because that's really all you need to do, right? You need to have that in order to go to heaven. And when he returns, that way you go with him. But he says in those contexts, he says, be ready for my return, not to unbelievers, but to believers. So I think that might mean that there's something for me as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, that it is possible that I'm not really ready for Jesus to return and that I need to make sure that I am ready. And this isn't an issue of salvation or not salvation, but it is the idea of being ready and I think it comes back to obedience and ordering my life as if the Bible were true. So are we ready or are we stuck on ourselves and our kingdoms? Here's the thing, God is not looking for a new message for us to proclaim. He is inviting you and I to become the message he has already given. That's who we are. We are the message that God has already given and that we just have to step into that. I believe God's doing a work in his church. I don't believe that we're all listening necessarily. But just because we're listening or not listening, that's never changed God's approach <laughs> to speaking. I believe God's doing a work and he's calling us and I, and I believe that we need repentance. And, and I think repentance is when you agree with God to what he's doing. <laughs> you agree with God in what he's doing. And what I've found more times than not, when I repent, I basically agree with God to the most disruptive thing to what I'm currently doing because repentance is turning from one thing to another. So when I found that when I repent, it's typically me giving in to the thing that's most disruptive to what I'm currently doing and what I currently want. Basically, it's saying, God, I agree, do it. Purify me and purify your church. So one of the things that we want to invite you into as a church family as we continue to pursue and seek God and become more and more transformed is, is that we wanna invite you to fast together as a corporate body, as a local family of God. And we'd like to invite you to do that this coming Saturday. Um, for those of you who maybe never fasted before and done anything like that, we have some resources they're on the screen and you can um, look at our socials and things and, and get to that. But there's some, I mean, kind of a fasting for dummies because, you know, not all of us are familiar. And oftentimes as churches, we don't do a great job of helping people understand what fasting is. But there's some podcasts and some blogs about kind of beginning and, and what fasting is and, and that kind of thing. But we'd invite you on Saturday, this coming Saturday, to fast. And I know some of you may not be able to fast for health reasons, which is completely fine. You're welcome to participate together with us and maybe choosing to forego something else and joining us together and taking that time. 
to consider fasting and using that time to pray for a longing for God over all other things. That we would be hungry to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Make time to sit in a posture of prayer with the Bible and allow God to speak to you through his word. And then what we would like to do for those of you who want to participate together in this fast next Saturday is fast all the way through till you come to church and that next Sunday we're gonna do communion together and we would love to break our fast with communion as a people of God and celebrate God's work in us and recognize his lordship over us. So I'd ask this week that you prayerfully and wisely consider this corporate surrender to God next Saturday. God moves in spite of us. But the way we approach him opens the door for us to join him in significant ways. Worship team is gonna sing and you're welcome to join in. But I believe that God is doing something and his people need to be prepared. I don't know that we are yet. But Jesus is coming back and he's called us to be the message that precedes his return. And part of being that message is ordering our lives as if the Bible were true. Is, is to trust God because of who he is, not because of what our evaluation of him says. And I, and I heard this song and it felt really anointed. <laughs> and so we wanna worship as, as we continue. And so if you need to sit and pray or kneel or go pray with someone else, or just sit and listen or sing, you're welcome to, to participate that way. But this is my heart cry. This is what God is constantly laying on my heart. Is that Jesus is coming and his bride needs to be ready. And, and thank God that he hasn't returned yet because I don't know how ready we are. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.